Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, 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 here we are at the 2019 Tyler Conference. When we first did this, I never thought there would be a 2019 <laughs> Tyler Conference. I never thought there'd be any Tyler Conference, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> But I'm so thrilled that you're here. Uh, we're recording this one live for the sake of the tape. We're recording this one live in front of an audience. Um, and uh, filling in, since RJ Heyman is such a big personality, we needed two people to fill in for him. Uh, can, why don't you introduce yourselves? Uh, I'm Aaron Zimmerman. Uh, I uh, live in Waco, Texas, where I'm an Episcopal priest. Although in Tyler, I'm just, it's just me. It's just me. You're going to get the real unfiltered. No mm. collar. Uh, it's just going to be uh, industrial strength, yeah. Zimmerman. I love that. <laughs> yeah. In a tie, though. In a tie. That's right. To be clear. It's a little Dead Poet Society. Yeah, I don't I know what's it, happening. I, I get that, that anyways. Yeah. And I'm Matt McGill, and I do a whole lot of things in Tyler, but uh, none, not, nothing as important as steering the uh, Mockingbird Committee. And, Matt, is, uh, Matt is the reason for the season. Yes, baby. <laughs> I think, uh, in terms of the Tyler Mockingbird yeah. Conference, at least. Yeah. Um, and we're grateful to you. Man, we're so excited. Um, and who else is over there? Oh, sorry, me, Sarah Condon. <laughs> I was like, who else is here? Um, my name's Sarah Condon, and I'm regularly on the Mockingcast. And um, am I supposed to say what my job is? I'm from Houston. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the campus missioner, which is diocesan talk for chaplain for Rice University. Okay. Go Owls. Go, Go Owls. owls. I keep wanting to say University of Rice because I went to University of Mississippi, but that's not the same thing. <laughs> and um, so, yeah. Well, um, it's fun to do this I mean, together and to see you guys. Normally, we're, <laughs> Sarah and I are looking at each other through screens, yeah. and um, we can edit out uh, everything that yeah. sort of is bad yeah. or <laughs> uncouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can still edit, but you guys will know what we've edited. So, mm-hmm. um, you know. Don't, uh, don't tweet, don't live tweet this, please. Um, that sounds self-important. Okay, uh, the theme of this conference is the future of grace. The future of grace, and we've got these like very kind of dire straits looking posters all around. And uh, Matt and his team put together these incredible videos. So when I was thinking about the articles we would discuss for the Mockingcast, I thought we could do some slightly future themed uh, pieces. And, um, I'll be very interested to see where you guys take this, because the first one is one from Slate, uh, the website Slate, by Jane Hugh. And the uh, title is, Texting Means Never Having to Say Goodbye. Texting Means Never Having to Say Goodbye. And she writes this. She says, I realized I couldn't remember the last time I'd said got to go or even buy in an online conversation. I asked some friends in a group if they ever say goodbye when they chatted digitally. They all agreed that they didn't. One friend chimed in with a diagnosis. It's because we never go offline anymore. A goodbye is merited only if one plans to disappear into meat space for a while. 
<laughs> just to sort of casually use that word, meat space. Um, everything else is one long rolling conversation. The implication is comforting that your friends will always be there for you, literally at your fingertips. Foregoing the formalities of hello and goodbye implies a certain closeness. You can just jump into talking about Martha Stewart's Instagram posts, complaining about public transit, transit um, or swap clickhole articles. But as anyone who's ever sent a vulnerable text knows, it can be jarring to put a message out into the world and get nothing back. Mm leaving a message hanging in a void until the next time the conversation picks up. The etiquette of texting is, of course, different uh, from, than an in-person conversation, but it can still feel like your conversational partner's silence means something. Did I say something weird, or is she just busy? It can be even worse if you're trying uh, to date who you're texting. Is a slow or non-existent response a sign of disinterest? Or did something horrible happen to him? And then the, he mentions, a friend of mine actually began searching the local obituaries five days after a guy she'd uh, hit it off with abruptly stopped returning her texts. Um, but she, Jane, uh, 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 who here is um, surfacing sort of a base level of stress that results when there's no sort of ever closure to a conversation. She ends by referencing a study of uh, young people who communicate exclusively through texting. And uh, Michel, a 14-year-old boy in the study, said he'd rather get a harsh reply than be ignored. And Georgia, 16, explained a thought process that many of us are familiar with. Maybe this person was engaged in the conversation but suddenly had to do something else. Like he'd opened the message but afterwards he went away. Then the girl starts making thousands of questions and she worries. Uh, Georgia herself longs for simpler days. I think that before this feature existed, the feature that says when someone has seen your message, things were better. Mm. She told research. Uh, research indicates that we expect swift responses and it is at the very least irritating to us when we don't get what we want. People younger than 35 thought one should text back somewhere between a few minutes in an hour. It kind of turns uh, texting and the way we communicate into something, uh, what they're describing is something quite demanding, uh, and yet which there's no closure. And I, but I also love this picture of the fact that you're, you're, you're in constant touch with people. And, then, and they also cite a study that says people who text more frequently uh, report higher levels of happiness. So since neither of you have returned my texts about this uh, article, what, uh, what did you think about it? I, I mean, I like that it's open-ended. So that's always like fun for me. And I text a lot. Um, or I can actually, well, I text a lot, but it'll, you know, it'll happen sort of certain days I will, certain days I won't. And I can actually tell that I'm happier on the days that I'm texting people. Hmm. Um, but I'm also super into memes. So, um, like, housewives memes and drag queen memes are my favorite things. Your meme game is strong, it's I strong. will say. It's strong. You're good at this. So, like, I, I like that. It also reminds me a little bit of, like, the, like, the intimacy of, like, when we're, con like, like, when you go through a day and you're, you, uh, even if it's a hard day and you find yourself sort of talking to God a lot, there's, there's that kind of open-endedness to me that's really beautiful that, like, um, that I love, but... 
as I will say, as a, um, as a pastor's wife, priest's wife, as we say in the Episcopal Church, I love this less. Yeah. Because are you familiar with like, well, it'll be like 845. We'll just be trying to watch our shows about like food, which is what we watch at night because it's like not <laughs> stressful. And somebody will text uh, my husband. And Facebook Messenger is the, because no, very few people have my cell. Oh, uh, intentionally. not in the Condon household. Well, yeah. yeah. It's but, on the front of the website. But the Facebook message. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, HolySpiritHouston.org. Yeah. And then the Josh next Josh Condon's thing, phone number. Yeah. yeah 24 no. 7. Yeah. Uh, but the, yeah, I have to do the D&D every night, not Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. I'm a Christian. I don't play that. But, um, the do not disturb, you know, this feature yeah, yeah, is great. Yeah. Um, but that goes on every night yeah. because there are people that, that, so there's good things in the always on can be connected. Right. Uh, but there's also the, the downside. Uh, what this, uh, I, I, where I experience this uh, is with, um, I have certain family members who I will not now name and publicly shame. Uh, but who, it's like they have a phone, but they forgot they're supposed to use it occasionally. Huh. And so you'll text them and the phone will be off and, uh, um, and I won't hear back for days on end. And, uh, uh, and I find myself getting angry. Hmm. So there's the part where you feel the silence is judgment. Um, and that's kind of what this article is about. But I've experienced it as um, it's a mirror to my own self-importance. Hmm. Uh, I thought of a funny thing. I will share it with you now. What do you mean it's not the most important thing for you to respond to right now? <laughs> um, I demand your approval and acknowledgement or something like that. So, uh, and you know, this person is playing with, uh, with their children or you know, spending time with their loved ones, but, but I'm about like, you know, recognize me, affirm me. Um, not proud of that, it is what it is. Uh, McGill can't relate to that. Well, it sounds, it seems like sometimes that-, that uh, <laughs> Because you're more self-actualized well, than I am. Mate, perhaps. According yeah. to Paul Zoll, I definitely am. Yeah, I He know. told me. It's, you're glowing, <laughs> I yeah. can see. You've got a Thank chart. You. Yeah. Thank you. I, I feel, I wonder sometimes if the phone has become like a portable prayer device, except that it's not going to God, mm. it's going to, one of our friends, like I literally find myself in my loneliest times, like mm. flicking through all of my contacts. Who can I text? Who can I text to not feel lonely? Oh, damn. You, you know? just got vulnerable, Miguel. Well, I mean, you know, no, like that's no time like the present. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like that's really, that really seems to be like, it's almost an aversion to solitude. Yeah. Yes. Ooh. Well, that's definitely, I think the case with a lot of texting. Mm -hmm. I, one, I, I thought this interesting that we almost always interpret silence as judgment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like we, we immediately go towards, uh, there's a no involved here. Mm -hmm. When most of our texting, at least the sort of insecure type of texting, uh, what the, what's underneath the text is usually, do you love me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, affirm me. Yeah, for sure. Answer me, acknowledge me. Right. Uh, and that is sort of what the internet itself is kind of allowing us to voice that. And not that it's, it's not new, um, it's but I wonder. It's very Job, right? It's very Job. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that you're like, you keep waiting for response. Wait, and maybe you're like, if it's to my husband, my texts get gradually crazier. Like I'm like, hey, where are you? And then like five minutes will go by. Hello? And I'm like, yeah, exactly. And then All I'm cats. like, I'm gonna kill the kids. You know, like I'll just write something completely nuts, you know? And then he'll text back and be like, um, I was in counseling with someone, you know? And, yeah, it feels like a little like Job. <laughs> I'm not going to kill my kids, but I will write something crazy to get them to text back. <laughs> uh, well, I the future of crazy, when you're, I think when we're talking to people about God and talking yeah. about what this is like, um, 
there was a there was a wonderful song by U2, which at the time I thought was a little bit, this is going to date real fast, but there's a song called Unknown Caller, mm -hmm. and it's all about um, using technology as a proxy for our relationship with God, and um, mm. God being the unknown caller that we, mm -hmm. and we, we don't pick up, or that we, we're, tr we're constantly moving our conversation to trash, you know, and, and trying to edit our prayer life, and right. edit who we are, and that, uh, that that can be spiritually kind of toxic, and yet, the, the text change that we have with some of our loved ones can be like a real source of joy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that they're never over. And that mm -hmm. they're sort of ongoing. There's no, I mean, I don't think there's any sort of lesson to be taken from this except for uh, it represents a new way of uh, engaging the world. Well, I think it represents, to me, it shows, uh, and you touched on this, that we always interpret silence as judgment. And I think that, or often do, I think that's one symptom of a larger thing, which is we're all pretty sure we're terrible people. We've got this internal voice all the time that we're a piece of crap. Uh, you know, at whatever age you are, you feel like you should have gotten your life together by now, and it's not. Um, uh, your garage is full of projects started and not finished. Uh, there's that like unopened bottle of stain that you were going to use <laughs> to redo that part and you've not even done the first thing. Uh, I'm speaking totally hypothetically. Um, and so uh, we're just pretty sure we're terrible people and we, can, and we turn that on instantly and it's always going and you never notice. And so when there's silence on the other end, your first thought is, this is just confirming that I'm a terrible person. Mm -hmm. We're always sort of scanning the horizon, looking for who, who is, where is there someone who can corroborate the judgment that I already feel upon myself? Mm -hmm. That's and, why the, the gospel is such a right, foreign, it's a foreign word. word. It's, and, and so your first thought is not, oh, this person is in a pastoral counseling session because he's an Episcopal priest. Right, right, right. Uh, right. I'm like, he hates me, I knew yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, me. Exactly. We always, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. we make it personal. That person cut me off. That, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. as opposed to, you know, maybe the wife is in labor, or right. maybe they, you know, there's a sale at Gap. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not about you. Is Gap still sailing It's, close? it's hanging yeah, on. Yeah, okay. Old Navy's great. Old Navy. Old we, Navy all know about old, we all know about Old Navy. I, yeah. Old Navy is clothing the entire country, yeah, as far as right. I can tell. Yeah. Anything else for you, from you? You know, I was just thinking about phone calls. I was thinking about the old beep, leave a message. And yes. I, I remember a story about a pastor <laughs> that, that a pastor told one time where he was calling, calling, and he, and, he, and he got the answer, and the answer machine came on and it says, all it said was, who are you and what do you want? And he went, that's too heavy. Existential, man. Who am I? And what do I want? <laughs> I don't know! If I knew the answer to that question, I wouldn't be calling you. But there's uh, that, I, think that, I think that there's the absence of that uh, kind of thing in texting where we can we never have to end a conversation yeah. and we never have to start a conversation that it's just always ongoing. And I think there's something about the initiation and closure that are very part and parcel with, you know, living is yeah. being born and dying and it, we don't want we don't want either of those things. There's there's some sense in which the anxiety, the low level ambient hum of anxiety mm -hmm. with which we all live today is not being helped by the fact that we never get closure or assurance that we're looking for. That's mm -hmm. right. Um, and I think that it yet, yet another invitation mm -hmm. for, I think, the, the, the open door of the, the great yes that we, uh, that we talk about when we talk about the future of grace. Yes. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the future of what you want to be when you grow up. 
This is a, the New the York Toys Times. Toys R Us kid. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. Yeah. The organizational psychologist Adam Grant, who um, is everywhere these days, he's a he's very prolific. Um, he's writing the New York Times. He in with one of those clickbaity uh, titles. Stop asking kids what they want to be when they grow up. And uh, he says this because he says, when I was a kid, I dreaded the question. I never had a good answer. Adults always seemed terribly disappointed that I wasn't dreaming of becoming something grand or heroic like a filmmaker or an astronaut. My first beef with the question is that it for forces kids to define themselves in terms of work. Mm. When you're asked what you want to be when you grow up, it's not socially acceptable to say a father or a mother let alone a person of integrity. <laughs> this might be one of the reasons uh, many parents say their most important value for their children is to care about others, yet their kids believe that top value is success. When we define ourselves by our jobs, our worth depends on what we achieve. And he goes on, he says, uh, say you do manage to overcome the obstacles in your way and become what you, as you said you wanted to be when you grow up, there's another hurdle. Careers rarely live up to your childhood dreams. In one study, looking for the ideal job left college seniors feeling more anxious, stressed, overwhelmed, and depressed throughout the process, and less satisfied with the outcome. As Tim Urban writes, happiness is reality minus expectations. If you're looking for bliss, you're bound to be disappointed. This explains research showing that people who graduate from college during a recession are more satisfied with their work three days, decades later, because they don't take it for granted that they have a job. Mm. Isn't that interesting? When I was a kid, I was supposed to say I wanted to be a cowboy. <laughs> and the closest I've come is just doing conferences in Tyler, Texas. We do have those <laughs> chaps. So, you, did, you have um, those chaps. And listening to a lot. Oh, I do have. Right. <laughs> hey, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> was that not public information? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did you want to be? Uh, when you grew up? Uh, yes, yeah, Sarah, you go first. What do you think of the article, too, Sarah? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I, I think I, there's always this thing in parenting right now where we're all saying, like, oh, we really want our, you know, we want our child to be empathetic and to care about others. And then, like, that's like, that's, there's like this very thin veil, and just behind it is like, you better rule the world, you know, kind of thing <laughs> that we just try to keep hidden behind this niceness. Be an empathetic hedge fund manager. Exactly. Yes. And I think that's, that's right. what our kids are feeling, or for sure. Um, I wanted to be, um, I had said this before, I don't know if I've said it here, but when I was growing up and you had to write what, you, like, that, back then they'd ask you and you would write it in the blank, and I always said, a nun and a housewife. Because I didn't know any ordained women when I was a little girl, but I knew that I could be a nun and a housewife because I had seen The Sound of Music a lot. And so that was always like my deepest desire was to be Maria. And incidentally, right before I got ordained to the priesthood, um, I got a really short haircut, like way shorter say, than this. I was say, it's not dissimilar. Way shorter than this. And I was in a white robe and somebody handed me flowers. <laughs> and I was like, I feel like God spoke that over me. You know what I mean? So. You are Maria. I'm a nun and a housewife. Yeah, it worked out for me. So. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I wanted to be, in my heart of hearts, I think I wanted to be Chris Robinson from the Black Crows. Oh. oh. <laughs> 
It was a big hug that our listeners can't see between McGill and me. It was a deeply personal, intimate moment. It was moment. a real moment, yeah. yeah. That was special. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think I gravitated towards that, but I would have never actually vocalized that. I'll, I mean, mm-hmm. said that to anyone. I, I told made it people possible I wanted for to you be a scientist. To yeah, that. that's to, right. To, that's right. Yeah. That's right. McGill, making, <laughs> making my wildest dreams come true. <laughs> oh, uh, but I think uh, the thing that, um, what was interesting to me about this article is that it, he said, like, don't force kids into thinking that their identity is based on their job. Good. 100%. Agree with that. He said, make sure that their identity is based in being a perfect person. <laughs> right? He says, like, your, your, your kid should say, if they're self-actualizing, if you're a good enough parent, your kid should say, I would like to be a person of integrity. I mean, what an a-hole if somebody says that. Yes. Like, I hate you now. Like, how pretentious is that? Like, I want to be a... I mean, yes, hey, it's little true. Jimmy, what do you want to be? Yeah. Person I'd, of integrity. I'd like to be a person I'd of like, integrity. I mean, it's very Ned Flanders, and everybody hates Ned Flanders, right? Because yeah. he's, like, so perfect all the time. So I think he, he's, like, he, he almost saved you, but then he gave you even a heavier burden. Mm-hmm. Um, think about, in there really invite nicely, them to it? think about what kind of person they want to be. Well, gosh darn it, like, what I want to do is eat buffalo wings all day, but I'm not allowed to say that, so I have to say something else, you know, um, that sounds good, but it's not really true. So anyways. That's so true, though, because if you ask kids, like, what do you, like, if you say to your kid, like, we could do anything, what do you want to do? They're always like, I want to eat candy and go to Disney World. Yeah, like, okay, that's what we, they actually want. Yeah, I mean, like, what, like, what, yeah. what is that going to accomplish? Like, yeah. yeah. Were you guys told, like I was, that you could do anything yes. that you wanted to do? Yes. Like, my mom still says, like, you could have done anything you wanted yeah. to do. And yeah. I'm like, that's such yeah. a wide door that that actually yeah. increased the pressure. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, why yeah. not say you're, you're clearly not athletic? Well, he quotes you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you you know, you should sing, uh, you know, or something you are like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he quotes Chris Rock, yeah. right, Aaron? Yeah. He says, uh, like, maybe four kids in a class could do anything they wanted. The rest should learn how to weld. Yeah. <laughs> and just be happy with that, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, it does stress, I, 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 this, this idea that college seniors, especially, when they're told that they need to optimize their opportunities and do exactly what it is they love, which is also extremely um, uh, going to be going to earn them a lot of money. That's a whole lot of pressure mm-hmm. to put on anyone. And I watch in my work, and now, Sarah, you're going to be joining me in this field of working with undergraduates. And I sit across students who are petrified that they're making the wrong choice mm-hmm. because it's, it's the same as it is with like a soulmate type thing. If there is one perfect career out there for you, then God help you if you choose the wrong one. Yeah. Right. I blame Jack Palance. Jack Palance? Mm-hmm. So, Curly uh, from- yeah, Curly from City Slickers. Yeah, so you know, Billy Crystals is like, what's the secret of life? And he's like, this. He holds up his index finger. And Billy's like, you know, what, your finger? No. One thing. Like, find the one thing and do that. Mm. You know? And I, so obviously that idea existed before him. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, yeah, it's paralyzing to think that there's the one right person and the one right job and the one right path. And if you don't get it, your life will be uh, over. I mean, it's, uh, I, nobody can live with that. Mm. So. And does anyone ever consider themselves a grown-up? I mean, I don't well, know if yeah, they actually do. Th- that's the other thing. Like, the idea that you ever get to a place when, A, you're grown-up and you are who you wanted to be. Um, ev- everybody who gets success says the same thing. Like, I thought this would make me happy, but I'm still the same neurotic person I've always been. And don't you become the sort of empathetic person that this author suggests we ought to by 
failing yes. to become right. what you want to become. Yeah. Get, yeah. It comes by through the cross, not, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, not through the achievement. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's ne you never become more empathetic through achievement ever. No. That doesn't happen. It's impossible. Yeah. <sighs> right. Yeah. You don't learn compassion through achievement. Yeah, John Mulaney has talked about being on SNL with uh, when Mick Jagger was performing, and Mick Jagger just goes like Diet Coke, and holds out his hand, and somebody just puts one in his hand. And so one, I was like, new goals. <laughs> <laughs> but two, I mean, that will warp your view of the world right. uh, if you have that level of um, I don't know service well, that actually, you've achieved. That is a perfect lead-in, as always. You give uh, us Sarah to the final piece that we're talking about today, which is a doozy from Father Stephen Freeman, who we, we talk about quite a bit on the Mockingbird website, and we've, we've, we occasionally reference him here uh, on the Mockingcast. He uh, wrote an article called The Ladder of Divine Ascent and Moral Improvement. Um, now, he mentioned that in uh, the Orthodox tradition, that he is a, where he is ordained, that uh, the fifth Sunday in Lent, which is this Sunday, is the feast day of St. John Climacus. Uh, I, this, that just shows you how orthodox I am. Um, who's the author of the ancient work, The Ladder of Divine Ascent. A great work, but, he, but he, before he dives into what, uh, uh, what uh, St. John actually said in this work, he says, ladders are dangerous things to put in the hands of a modern Christian. Mm. Um, modernity likes ladders, he writes. We like the idea of upward mobility, of continuing improvement of moral progress. We speak of career ladders and the ladder of success. It is the myth of personal power, and its most subtle and seductive version is that of moral progress. We simply are not saved by getting better. It is a false image and a false goal. Of course, critics will charge that I'm being defeatist and suggesting a path devoid of moral effort. I am doing nothing of the sort. Everyone should at all times struggle against sin, but measuring, even watching for improvement, can be not only self-defeating, but sinful in itself. Then he quotes St. John of Climacus. He says uh, th this one line from this, uh, the ladder of ascent. He says, you cannot escape shame except by shame. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, what he says is that we do not gradually improve and thereby leave our shame behind us. Instead, the way down is the way up. The ladder of divine ascent is actually a ladder of divine descent. The path of modernity carries no humility. It breeds pride and frequently contempt. Failure is its nemesis. We blame ourselves for laziness and sloth, certain that a little more effort will make the difference. Like a child given a bad grade, we plead that we'll try harder. But St. John points us towards our shame. He does not describe a path of moral improvement. His path follows the cross, which is the descent into Hades. My failure, not sought for its own sake, and we do not sin in order to gain grace, is always and immediately the gate of Hades and the gate of paradise. Meaning, when I acknowledge my failure and refuse to hide from its shame, then we can call out for Christ to comfort us. I did not turn my face from shame and the spitting, Isaiah 56. God will meet us in our shame and takes it upon himself. Mm -hmm. God does not meet us in the middle, Freeman writes. He meets us at the bottom and asks us to meet him there as well. It is, when the, it is within that place that true humility is born. Judgment ceases. If I accept my shame in union with Christ, how can I judge another? Mm. 
Indeed, it is largely my efforts to avoid my shame that makes me judge my brother. We can only avoid judging if we, quote, see our own transgressions. The constant nagging voice demanding improvement and excellence is not the voice of God. It is often nothing more than the neurotic echo of modernity sounding in our brains. It drives us with the threat of shame. However, Christ has trampled down shame by shame and invites us to do the same thing. You cannot escape shame except by shame. I mean, heavy. And, um, but amazing. But kind of amazing. I mean, I, what Lenten what, as can be. What I loved about this is I know several, and there's many people for whom this is true. They start out as an evangelical, non-denominational Christian, um, learn about church history, realize there's more to Christianity than the last 200 years, and start looking for that deeper truth. And so they, they go from that world to, sometimes there's a stop in the Episcopal Anglican world, but then they realize that's a zany, zany place. A zany place. Making eye contact with Condon, the yeah, other yeah. Uh, ordained yeah, yeah, person yeah, up here. Yeah. And then, then they, so like, let's try the Roman Catholic Church, because yeah. they got it going on. They've held the line. They're the pure, true right. one. And right. then like, oh, wait, they split a thousand years ago. And the, the one that goes the farthest back and is the best is the Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these folks that have made that journey and found themselves there. And I wonder if those are some of the people who's, who then sit in front of Father Stephen Freeman. And he, as he quotes, he says, I often hear this sad confession. I don't feel like I'm a very good Orthodox Christian. Mm. And, um, and he says, you know, the Orthodoxy is considered, the, you know, the Marines of the spiritual life. And isn't that amazing that even when they've gotten there... They still feel like we're not good enough. And I've known, I mean, I don't know a single Christian that actually thinks they're doing a good job of it. Mm. Orthodox, evangelical, Episcopalian, Baptist, whatever. Um, And I think um, what I always try to tell people, and I think he's trying to tell people this, and what Mockingbird is trying to tell people, is that when you have fallen flat on your face, when you are the mayor of the little French town in Amalie, and you wake up in the shop window after binging on chocolate during Lent. That's, yeah, chocolat. Chocolat, yeah. There's only two French movies I've seen. That and the triplets of Bellevue. (laughs) Um, So you've covered in chocolate uh, after you've been talking about the evils of it. I mean, it's like a teetotaler waking up hungover. Mm -hmm. Like that moment... That's what he's talking about. That, that's where you find God working, because that's when grace is, is real. And so I was, if you're aware that you're not a God Christian, you, as Robert Capon says, you are God's cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Like you're in exactly the right place. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's trying to tell people. Like there's not a single good Christian in the world. I mean, there was one once. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I'm out of phase, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you drive through life with only a rearview mirror. And I only understand my life looking back on it. Mm. So it's only by kind of looking back and those face-to-palm yeah. moments uh, that you realize uh, that you have the opportunity for repentance or looking back and going, what the hell was I thinking? What was I doing? That you get born again to, uh, to God's grace mm. retroactively. So that's, you know, that, you, that you sort of reimagine your past redemptively, mm. even as you tripped through your present, not having any idea what you were doing at the time. Mm. Yeah. That's deep. Well, it is though. I, I, it's a, let me just sing this. This is a line from a, from a song that I wrote. Here we go. Good. All Cause right. RJ, can, RJ sings. sings. He does. Sometimes. And now only the little mermaid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's an old man in me who one day I will be 
who'll look back on these days I now live. The consequences he hates, but understands my mistakes. And the man I am now, he forgives. Mm-hmm. So that there's this future me that, learnt, that leans into forgiveness for the old me mm-hmm. because the old me no longer lives but Christ. Mm. So that, that seems to be something about like going, getting away from shame by going through shame, mm. not pole vaulting over Good Friday <laughs> to <laughs> get to Easter. Seculosity. That's right. <laughs> Sarah, what's, what's, what's running through your mind? I have a couple of different thoughts. And they're a little bit all over the place. Um, I, one thing I think we have to be careful of sometimes, I mean, I just think where our tendency is always to make a law and to figure out a system. And so I was actually teaching women's Bible study last night. And we were taught, and I sort of ended with like, you know, but all, but all we need to have in God is faith. And I love the women that I teach this Bible study to because we've been doing it for a long time together and they're they're like good law gospel spotters. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and one of the women was like, but do we even need faith? Ooh. I know, which I was like, excuse me. Who's teaching this class? I know. <laughs> um, but like, which I think is a really good question because often we say that even in, in the, these circles, we need faith and then it becomes, well, how much mm. do I have enough? Mm. You know, and that becomes its own kind of moral, like, what does my faith look like? It, you know, is, I mean, that I remember even as like a teenager being like, do I have enough faith in God? That was a thing that haunted me. Yeah. Um, and so that becomes its own measurement. I think neediness is a better word than faith. Mm. Um, because I think we can all agree that we're needy. And I think that needy isn't a thing that we have to make look good, whereas Mm. faith is, you know? Mm. Um, That's good. I'm going to say this next part carefully because I'm really not supposed to talk about this, but here we go. Bring it. Um, This is why you're here, Sarah. Right. Um, We have a family member that we did not know about. And that's all I can say. A very close family member that we just found out about about a week and a half ago. The existence of. The existence of this person. So it's been really crazy for my family and wonderful. And I think it's going to be wonderful, but complicated and all these things. And, but when this person called me, he said, I found you and your husband on the internet and I saw that you're both really churchy. And so I thought maybe you wouldn't want to talk to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, just the worst thing we've done to Christianity mm-hmm. is that we've turned it into this thing that is so moralistic, that is so like, can you be better? And what does it mean to mm-hmm. look like a good Christian that we just scare all the people who really need it off? Yeah. And so, yeah, I can't, I can't read this and not think about that. Like what, what do we do when we make it? I mean, I was on the way here and sometimes I'll go, I'll listen to Christian radio, which is especially scary in this part of Texas. <laughs> I feel like I'm No kinda, offense. Yeah, no offense, guys. Um, but I mean, I'm from Mississippi, so it's scary there too. But there was this person, she was talking about, um, and it was a woman. So I was like, oh, well, you know, like I'm a sister. I'm going to listen to her. And she was just saying, like, if you don't, and I'm not even going to say what the issue was, but she's like, if, you don't, if you're not out on the streets fighting for this issue, if your church isn't talking about this issue, then you're not a Christian. She said that. And, and I was like, mm. and I, I mean, there's, you know, and that's always the thing about Mockingbird that's so compelling for me is we just, 
we just refuse to go right or left. Like we're going to stay in that gospel center. You know what I mean? Like it's that center of, of, of everything. That's where we're going to stay. And um, because we remember that Jesus loved the tax collectors and the widows, and we're going to stay in that. And um, for me, it was, it just kind of wrecked me to hear her say this thing, right? Because there's so many things we can put in that blank. If you're the right or the left, there are so many things we can put in that blank. And I was just like, hmm. So then I, I found a station that played rap in Spanish, and I <laughs> that the rest of the way. <laughs> there are some good things about radio in Texas. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah yes. Uh, I, I um, was thinking recently, because it's uh, getting near the end of Lent, and Holy Week is coming, and this reading um, on Maundy Thursday, the Last Supper, and Jesus yeah. gets up from the table, and... and to me, the thing that I'm constantly trying to combat as a preacher and as a pastor is what people think God is like. Mm. Um, and they never look to the Bible. People that have gone to church their whole life never actually look to the Bible. They've gotten it from culture or from what grandma said or who knows where they're a horrible preacher at some point in their life or some well-meaning but really off-brand friend. Off-brand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so they think God hates them because that one thing they did that one time or that five-year period or how they acted after their divorce or what they did that led to their divorce or whatever it is, and they're just convinced that they're the worst ever, and they never actually look to the Scriptures. And what, what struck me as I was reading these texts again for Monday Thursday, again, this, these Holy Week, end of Jesus' life passage, what struck me afresh was the fact that Jesus gets up from the table after this meal um, says what he's going to do. I'm going to die, and this is happening. And um, he gets up, takes off his clothes, puts on a towel around his waist, and starts washing the disciples' feet. And he's going, you can just picture him going around to the room, and he gets to Judas, and he washes Judas's feet. Mm. I mean, the text doesn't say that, but I mean, it makes it clear that he does everybody in the room. And this is what God is like. God is the one who does not, even when he knows you're going to fail and you have failed, when he gets to you, he still washes your feet. Um, that's what God is like. Uh, and um, I, wish, I wish people could get, so this thing, like this attitude, like I don't feel like I'm a very good Christian. I need to be on the ladder. I thought I'd be in a higher rung. I thought I'd at least be, you know, in the <laughs> 20s number rungs, but I'm still on number five or six or whatever. I mean, that's, you've, you've, you forgot what God is like. Mm. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, that's, I think that's, you know, the uh, Steve Brown, who we're about to hear from, the, yeah. the sort of a bit of a Jedi master, his tagline. Yes, he is. is it says. <laughs> In a word. <laughs> no, it's, it's like says Steve Brown. And then it like, you know, like a little motto. It says, God's, God's not, not mad, mad at, at you. you. Yeah. That's sort of what he's really trying to get across. That's so good. And it's when it's, uh, remember, the texting conversation. Yeah. It, this, we, in the silence, we read in the, the, that the person is mad at us. Yeah. Even if we had a great childhood and we feel like we're totally affirmed and loved by the world, that gut level, the, the verdict of the law, I think, I mean, yeah. our thing, I think the sort of uh, pain of what it means to be alive is that you immediately mm. project that onto God. And then here's the Bible that comes along, Jesus who comes along and says, this is what I'm trying to, you know, you even putting me on a cross is not going to stop me uh, loving you. Mm. And uh, I, I had to preach the prodigal son story last week. Yeah. And it's, it's all passage. of this. It's all of this. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the it's the son, the self indulgence, the failure, which leads him into this close relationship with the father, 
and the self-righteous scorekeeping older brother mm -hmm. and who's successful who's who it who it distances from from the father yeah and who kind of you, you can only imagine comes back with a machine gun and mows down the entire party right mm -hmm. and yet we learned that that's not the end of the story of the, the pharisees were able to execute him and yet here we come as you know spoiler alert easter yeah it's coming and uh the god's not mad at you this is how far i have to go to make sure you know that Let's let's end there since we've got we get to hear from Steve now. Yes. Uh, though you people listen to the podcast, um, don't uh, you know? It might be a few weeks. Uh, we may we might not ever share it with you. Uh, in which case, uh, don't take our silence as a judgment. Yeah, uh, that's right. We love you. Uh, thank you for being with me, guys. Thanks, yeah, thanks for singing, man. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Be man. more of that tonight, man. All right, blessings to you. All right, all right. There we go. Thanks, thanks everybody. For Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Hey.